What's up, Beards and Bible listeners? On our last episode, we talked about gun ownership, self-defense, and the Christian ethics related to those issues. And today, we're going to hear a different perspective, one that advocates nonviolence, gun control, and we're going to talk about Christian pacifism. Even though there are many American evangelicals who are unfamiliar with and sometimes even oppose those who hold to this view, historically there have always been groups of Christians worldwide who have advocated and consistently practiced nonviolence, including the Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, many Anabaptist Christian fellowships, many Adventists, and Moravians, just to name a few. As a matter of fact, the largest Pentecostal denomination, the Assemblies of God, held to this position until the Second World War. So, how do those who hold to this position think about the scriptures that seem to allow believers to practice self-defense? What are the ethical implications of exercising complete pacifism and nonviolence as a Christian, even when you might see evil and violence being done to others? Everybody to the Beards and Bible podcast. So glad you tuned in wherever you are. I am joined this beautiful day, not by my normal podcasting partner, but by someone else with a noble beard, just as he has my friend Aaron. Aaron, how you doing, man? Good, Josh. Thanks. I was actually about to ask, is it like a requirement to have a beard on this podcast? Uh, I just pretty get lucky? much. Yeah, pretty okay. much. Yeah. Well, I won't turn my head too much because then you'll see massive patches and, you know, the front is fine. That's about it. Yeah, no, it looks full to me. Well, you just turned your head to drink your latte and I saw a little Yeah, sorry. No, no, it's cool. My, it's, my beard's a sham. My beard is like Kenny Rogers style right now. It's been going that way for a long time. So, you know. Listen, I'd rather have Kenny Rogers in full than patchy and, uh, you know, this. Yeah. You got to know when to hold them, you know, and to fold them. But, uh Man, it's been cool catching up with you uh, before we started recording, just kind of catching up. We went to college together, had some crossover mm-hmm. a little bit at Southeastern. Um, tell the people a little bit about yourself and uh, your podcast and the work you do. And yeah. 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 Uh, kind of a, a trajectory of things. Um, I guess I'll start with where the podcast started from. I was an assistant professor of theology for a long time, during my tenure at that university, I had uh, started a po- uh, started a blog, kind of while I was working on a PhD and an MDiv. I decided I wanted to do something else, so I started a blog and um, did that for a while, and then kind of decided, you know what? I think it must have been five years ago or so. I was like, I'm I'm going to turn it into a podcast because I'd just rather talk than type, you know. <laughs> Maybe it's yeah. less brain power for me, and <laughs> we'll see if anyone listens to the rambling. So I, I changed it, kind of not changed it. I mean, the podcast, the blog still ran for a while, but really the focus has really been the podcast. Um, but in that time, finished that MDiv, uh, finished uh, my PhD at the University of Birmingham in the UK, which is in theology. Uh, my main area of focus is 
epistology, soteriology, uh, with its engagement, somewhat in new, new perspective studies, Tillich's cool. theology. It's kind of a, my technical field is constructive theology and hmm. it's an odd term to put in front of theology because people just think, well, isn't all theology constructive? Sure. And, and sure. Yeah. Right. But there is a distinct field that's not systematic. Um, there's a distinct field called constructive theology. Hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a work group on constructive theology. They talk about its goals and its aims, but it's a bit different than systematic, but that's kind of the field that I work in, which is interdisciplinary. So it's working with different disciplines and even just different Christian disciplines, theology, biblical studies, biblical theology, and tries to find ways of integrating them together, usually around concerns about ethics and theology. Um, but there can be other concerns yeah. kind of coming out of constructive theology too. So that, that's all. That's it. Me and my wife and our son and our son to, I mean, there might be a chance that, you know, I get a text that says we got to go to the hospital because <laughs> we're waiting any day now, another son. So, yeah. uh, if I run, that's probably why I'll just, okay. Um, I'll finish it myself nope. if that's the case then. So, <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. You, you figure it out. I'll you know, just figure right? it out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, That's awesome. Nothing I'm saying is that important. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we're expecting any time and we're in uh, Ohio uh, for the next seven or eight months and have a new adventure happening next year that I'll be able to talk about next year. Awesome, man. Awesome, awesome. So you said, is it pistology? Is that the, the term you used earlier? Yeah, like it's, it's essentially of kind of a... The, yeah, a theology okay. of faith or study of faith. Okay. Because often this term faith, and I won't go too long because it's not the point of this podcast today. But, <laughs> well, uh, hey, I right? noticed faith. on your on your the, on your uh, podcast you interviewed Matthew Bates, and yep. um, mm-hmm. I've met Matthew. He's a fan, fantastic guy, and his you know whole thing is pistis is allegiance, which is faith and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And so I found his work to be super fascinating on that. So yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, I did one of those stupid things where I was in in the throes of my PhD, kind of near the end, but I had kind of put on Facebook about how I'm actually arguing that his argument is self-defeating. Um, mm. And I go through and I, in my dissertation, actually show where his argument is self-defeating and really his his, as much as he wants to get out of the idea that faith is not reducible to a set of beliefs, he actually argues that it is, and I huh. show how that is. Uh, and I have had him on the podcast, and I and I just kind of wrote this because I was in the throes, and I was like, "Yeah, this is the big part of next part of my argument." And I forgot that we're friends on Facebook. He's been <laughs> on the podcast. He's an incredible guy. I think his work's really important, and in fact, yeah. I think allegiance does help, sure, in so many ways. But the argument itself, theologically, is is yeah. a miss. I think a bit. Well, it's funny. Uh, some of the people that he's also disagreed with, I'm also friends with. So it's been interesting. He, he seems like the kind of guy that in a very well-meaning way would not be the one to back down from a, a theological discussion, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I feel like once you've, you know, you've got that three little letters that mean everything and nothing at the same time behind yeah. your name, uh, that is your role in some sense as sure, to, sure. you know, I think about, N.T. Wright and um, James Dunn, right? Massive mm-hmm. figures in biblical studies and both new perspective guys, and they consistently basically made claims that the other was dumb. Yeah. In, in kinder terms. <laughs> in, in the nicest terms, way possible, I mean, right? Yeah. 
it, yeah, but they yeah. never pulled punches. I mean, they were yeah. constantly at each other's arguments, and yeah. I always found that fascinating, yeah. especially because they were also friends. So yeah, that's the academic world. That's what you've got to Absolutely. be ready for if you want to get into it. Yeah. Academic, well, hey, speaking of which, that's world. a good transition because uh, initially we maintained a we, we we regained contact after not really speaking for a while, just because we fell out of touch. Went to college twenty years ago. Um, because of this last podcast on self-defense, mm-hmm. Christians owning firearms, we were defending uh, or interviewing a guy with a podcast called Defenders and Disciples. And you'd reached out and just said, hey, what about the other side of this? And um, man, I think that's awesome that I have friends on Facebook that have another side of this and that would be willing to to talk about the other side of it. Um, and so when it comes to this issue of gun ownership, self-defense, even in getting into just war stuff, which we didn't really touch into just war as much when I talked with my friend Taylor, but how, how would you describe your position regarding Christians employing firearms for self-defense? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be such an unsatisfactory answer. <laughs> okay. Just truthfully is because, uh, you know, there's some background here, but the reality is, and and you can ask my wife, my answer to so many, especially the hot topic questions is often, I know the argument on both sides. Mm -hmm. I see some strengths on arguments on both sides, and I'm not convinced either way. Hmm. And truly with this argument, I probably fall in some ways more on the side of the not employing violence for any reason than I do for uh, violent use of weapons, even in defense, even in self-defense. My head, my theology, my my heart says that. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the main argument, there's someone who taught at the university we both were at uh, who you know, often used a very highly emotional argument to say, but you're not, because if you had someone storm into your house tomorrow and do this, you wouldn't, you would use a weapon if you had to, hmm. right? Sure. And and that that argument is highly emotional. And I don't dis uh I don't just kind of say, let's just push the emotions to the side of it, because I don't think that's correct either. Uh I think that there's something to be said about we as people, how we think about our families, how we think about protection, how we care for other, how we care for others does have a draw towards violence in certain times, in certain places. Whether that's correct or not is the question I think that we're talking about. Hmm. No. This, this is this is where this is where the argument gets really blurry and messy to start, is that we we start from a, a bit of a dichotomy in the conversation, or maybe dichotomy is not the right word, a bit of a misnomer, right? We often talk about things as they are versus things as they should be. Hmm. And there's there's a big difference, especially when we get into kind of biblical work and theological work, and talking about things as they should be and how we should be working towards those end goals, the telos, the telos of it all, right? The, yeah. the kind of theological term for the end purpose. Um, and we get we get blurry in the in the argument between the two. 
and and this is really hard to untangle because there's emotions involved, because there's rational arguments on both sides involved. It, it is really hard to untangle this world, especially because there's evil within the world. Sure. That's hard to to untangle within this as well. So I say all that to say my position, while I would definitely say I am someone who, as much as I can fathom, want to be nonviolent. I mean, the one thing I would maybe say, I did see your post and I, and I wouldn't call myself a Christian pacifist. I think that language itself is problematic, pacifism, because of the connotations that come mm. with pacifism. Yeah. But nonviolent resistance, I think, is, is a very clear path for when we talk about how should we be as Christians within the world. Right. So what is the way forward? So when we talk about this, like the Mennonites, Quakers, Adventists, you know, mm-hmm. Anabaptist traditions, all these, you know, some of these would be like complete Christian anarchists in the sense of saying, we don't need to participate in the systems of the world. So we're not going to be police officers. We're not going to serve in the military. We shouldn't do any of that as Christians. Did, would you find any room for agreement in those camps? Or I mean, where, what are you, uh, where are you seeing that? So, yeah, and I'm and I'm at a Brethren institution, the university I'm at now. Oh wow, okay. Uh, it's historically Brethren, so the Brethren have a very, tr- very kind of similar history. I mean, they're uh, Anabaptist kind of. I, I, it's not my tradition, so right. it's I don't want to speak for them, but I've learned a lot being here. Sure. Um. Yeah. So what do we say? So first off, I would say, well, they're much closer to historic ancient Christianity than we are. Well, explain that. If you look at the if you look at the early church fathers, many of the early church fathers were very against uh Christians being involved in military. They were actually even some were against Christians being involved in politics. Hmm. Um because of and 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 we can go through them. I have my notes as I was telling you kind of over here, but there's there's arguments to be made from our Christian historical past, our ancient church fathers who made these kinds of arguments to say, uh, you, you cannot be in the military and a Christian. And, mm. and there are times where it's changed. I think it was Tertullian, if I'm thinking right, I'm trying to quickly scroll through my notes to the right person, uh, who might have at one point just said, well, you really shouldn't be active in the military and a Christian. And then later on in his life, it was like, no, 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 you cannot serve in the military because a Christian cannot bear the sword. Hmm. Um, And so in a lot of those traditions, I would say, if we take, if we use an argument that says Christian tradition, especially early Christian tradition, you know, uh, some arguments, some Wrongly or rightly, some people take the argument of, well, the closer you are to Jesus in thought process, the more correct it must be. Hmm. We've kind of screwed it up along the way. If we take that trajectory, those traditions are much closer to the way of Christ than I would say another tradition that would say you can serve in the military, you can serve uh, as police officers and be Christian. Right. So I I don't think that that. Yep. Go ahead. Well, so Romans 13, right? Um, You know, Romans 13 would talk about people who bear the sword being instruments of God's justice in the world in some way. So how, how would the church fathers have interpreted that if, 
Romans 13 seems to say that's a holy, noble, God-instituted thing. Um, and then even in the New Testament, you see people who are centurions and soldiers following Jesus. How would they have explained that or, or saw that? Just curious. Yeah. So I'm not going to say it from here's how the ancient church follows, because that's not my world to say. Sure. Like, it's not my—I'm not going to pull up a Tertullian you know, commentary and right. kind of <laughs> nor as I prepared for that, right? Sure. Uh, and I'm sure there's Tertullian scholars that are much better to say that. They're probably not but I would say the Beards and Bible podcast, though. So, <laughs> well, hey, who knows? Maybe someone will reach out. You never yeah, know. Um, here's the thing, though. We have to also untangle. This is the this is the hard part, and, and I know we'll get into Luke at some point and and start to untangle Scripture. The hard part when we talk about any passage such as that is: Have we done due diligence in our cultural contextual study? To actually recognize not just what it seems to say on the surface within a different language 2,000 years later, but have we gotten both the philosophical worldview of the writer, Paul, and have we understood the argument as he's making it in relation to, uh, to violence and the use of the state, right? That is much harder work than just saying, aha, look, in Romans it says, right. it must be that this is about instrument of God's work, right? And the reality is there are a lot of times in Romans, and I'm not necessarily claiming that about this one, but there's a lot of times in Romans that Paul makes ironic statements, that he's not saying this is the truth as much as he's using an argument to make a grander point and pointing out something as as irony. And that's really tough about, about Romans in the fact that we often don't think that irony is used mm-hmm. as a as a uh, a grammatical tool of Paul, but he does. I mean, he makes statements all throughout. You know, talking about cutting off men's right private just parts, castrate right? themselves, he, he, yeah, in the Book of Galatians, he, yeah. He, he uses a lot of law, uh, verbiose and, and extravagant language to try and prove fuller points. So. Romans 13, I mean, what do we have in Romans 13? This it's, you know, it's used by it's used by every president, and it's used by every group of every person of every question against every president that they don't right. like or sure. the one that they do like. Paul is literally telling the people as much, and he says this elsewhere, as much as you can be at peace with those who are governing you. This in light of Romans earlier uh, when Paul makes this claim about proclaiming with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and having faith in your heart, then you will be future tensed, not present, not near present, future tense. You will be saved because Paul is telling them to do something that is contra the government. Say that Jesus is Lord. Right. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not. That is your, that's your proclamation. Sure. And then it's, but then he goes on to say, but as much as you can, recognize the government ahead of you stay at peace as much as you can they're there for a purpose right be at peace so you're saying there are things that are more important than that such as jesus christ is lord you will probably die you will probably be impaled on a stick and lit on fire like was happening at the time of the writing right proclaiming that jesus is lord but you will be saved right future tense so so it's your logic so you're saying the the emphasis in romans 13 is less on Hey, here's how 
law enforcement and military supposed to work, but it's more on, hey, submit to God, live at peace, trust God with the outcome. That's more the thrust of the passage. And so, historically speaking, Christians have always kind of been, in terms of, we're looking at the first 200 years of church history, right? Um, kind of opposed to participation in military, participation in law enforcement, participation in, um, you know, using I mean, some sort of a weapon for, for defense. That's what I'm hearing. It's, it's not long after, fourth century. I mean, most most just war theories find their way back to, to Augustine. Right. Right. Uh, so fourth century, around the same time, of course, as we have the Roman Empire becoming Christian, right? Uh, like we do see changes. And just because, so again, I'm not making the argument, it's earlier, it must be better, sure. right? I think that that's a problematic argument. But in some sense, what we can say is this issue has always been an important issue in Christian thought and thinking. Right. Always. Sure. And to dismiss that, I think, is to dismiss a part of church history that is there for a reason and there for good reason. Um, it's why I would say at the start of an argument, my answer to yes or no is going to be unsatisfactory for most who don't, who are more concerned about, I want to know either A, what I believe, or B, what is right or wrong, right. more than I am concerned about knowing hey, this is a really hard discussion, so let's keep in discussion about it yeah. and see if we can find things through that discussion. So to the Christians who would believe that owning a firearm specifically for self-defense is a biblically supported position, what what would you say to them? What would your counsel to them be? Um, my, my counsel would be, I mean, just to be clear, I have a hunting rifle. <gasps> I haven't used it in a long time. Oh, man, you right? got to come down have, to Tennessee, uh, take you out hunting, man. Well, <laughs> I think my hunting rifle is still up in North Florida where I used to use it for hunting. Well, I don't and know if you can see the deer antlers in my office. Can you see them? Let's see. No. There they are. There it is. Yeah. Oh, see? Oh. Uh, and I'm not against hunting by any stretch. I've got a World War II pistol nice. that I think if it were to be shot, probably would explode. <laughs> it was my grandfather's. <laughs> It was passed down. It stays in a locked safe. There's not even bullets in the house, but it's there anyways. Like How cool. It's a, it's a memento. But when it comes to biblically supported, it is it. you can actually say it's biblical. Well, first off, no. And no, just because guns aren't in the Bible. Right. There's nowhere that's going to... So if we even take it from a literal sense, if we say, okay, if I take a literal reading of Scripture... Can a gun be used for self-defense? Absolutely not. There's, I mean, of course, guns weren't even invented. It wouldn't have been a thought in the mind. If we take it from trying to talk about it theologically, and this is where maybe we can get into the Luke passage some, can we, can we see a trajectory within Scripture that would say that maybe it was a sword then, but maybe it'll be a musket later, maybe a gun later on? I also don't see it. And I... And I truly can't find anywhere in Scripture that would say, here is the way of Christianity. It's this thing. It is self-defense through guns. I see so much the other way, which makes it so much harder. 
I think the other way is actually the harder way because it it pushes back against my my flesh both desire and my flesh hope, right? I I again if I go back to that emotional argument of what if someone broke into my house in the middle of the night, right? Everything within my flesh is going to say, this is what I do. I defend my family with firearm and I will take out anyone, right? But I don't see that as a Christian attitude within scripture. And I can't see somewhere that's going to actually say, here's what you do with weapons. So let's quickly talk about Luke, right? The Luke narrative is is often so poorly misused because it's pulled out of context. It's often here's a verse that's used as a proof text for a desire, right? So like, specifically, let me, let me interrupt you a second. Luke 22, yeah, yeah. 36. Let me read it real quick in case somebody didn't listen to episode one, right? This is Jesus speaking to his disciples the night he is betrayed and arrested. And he says to them, when I s- sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Yeah. Such a fascinating passage. I mean, it's fascinating because of the multiple uh, kind of things happening here in the background of the passage. First, as, as as some would know, and if you look at your, if you're reading it online or on your Bible, there's probably a footnote that's going to kind of point you in that verse 37, it is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Mm-hmm. That's Isaiah 53, right? Very well-known messianic prophetic text, right? And even just reading, so Isaiah 53, verse 10, right? And then reading down to 12, which it ends at 12. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's a beautiful passage from Isaiah for for many different reasons, but one of the reasons was actually just to say, this is the way of the Messiah. This is it, that he would give his life unto others in suffering. And because of this, he will be made whole and be brought as a part of this uh, introduction to wholeness to the rest of the world, right? Like, this is the way of the Messiah, taking on this suffering, right? No indication there of the way of the Messiah is that he's going to come back and he's going he's gonna to take care of all those who made him suffer. No, no, no. That's not a part of Isaiah's message when it comes to the Messiah. And so what's happening in in this really fascinating section of Luke, and there's some that we can kind of find in John uh, as a further discussion, but we get this statement, right, about does anyone have, you know, if you don't have a sword, go buy a sword. 
And then he says, well, there's two. So they don't actually go buy swords. They don't go and take care. They already had them there, clearly, too, right? Not even one for every apostle. It's just like, all right, we got a couple swords, right? And then he says, that's enough. Well, that's odd, because if he's talking about defending defending yourself with a sword, why didn't he say, well, no, no, every person needs a sword. No, 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 two is enough. And there's a reason that two is enough. This isn't about him, uh, them in self-defense. It's not about them having swords to protect themselves. It's for what's literally about to come. So what happens next, right? Praying the Mount of Olives, very, very well-known Christian narrative about praying at the Mount of Olives. And then what happens, right? Jesus comes, or sorry, Judas comes, betrays Jesus with a kiss, and we get this, we get this uh, statement, right? When Jesus' followers, this is verse, verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw that he was going, what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? You told us to have swords. What should we do with them? Hmm. Should we strike with them? And what does it say? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. It's such a, it, it's actually the exact opposite of what we use it for to say, Jesus is telling people to go get swords. Jesus is actually talking to, I mean, sorry, I get so passionate about this. Oh, here. Hold good. on, yeah. right? So one of the reasons that Jesus is crucified, just one, but a big reason, is that Jesus is seen as a revolutionary. He's a threat to the Roman Empire, right? He's a threat both to the Jewish religious establishment, and he's a threat to the Roman Empire, specifically to Pontius Pilate, who has seen uprising happening. This is one of the things we know about Pilate, right? He's had multiple uprisings of Jewish people that has been squashed. If he has another one, we know what's going to happen to him. He's going to be put to death, and right. you know, it's going to be terrible for him, right? So... Jesus is seen as a revolutionary, and in fact, this is what Isaiah says the Messiah is going to be seen as, as a rebel. He is going to be seen as a rebel. And Jesus, in some ways, to say, so this prophecy can be fulfilled. If you don't have any sword, go buy a sword. Oh, we've got two. Perfectly. That's enough, right? Yeah. And now what happens? The sword is used, and Jesus says, no more of this. This is not who we are. And you have to recognize this is not who we are. The people who are who are uh, arresting me, even Pontius Pilate's confused. And this is where I was talking about John 18, right? In John 18, Pilate asked Jesus, because he sees him as a revolutionary, why did your people just stand there and hand you over? Because I've already gone through two revolts. Why did your people stand there and just hand you over. And what does he say? My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. Yeah. This verse has literally nothing to do with self-defense. So even if we want to talk about, again, it would actually be contrary to self-defense, but even mm. if we want to talk about self-defense, this passage is not a, not one yeah. to hang your well, head on. I got a couple questions from that viewpoint, and here's here's the one. So if them having a sword is simply for prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 53 to say they got to look like bandits in order for the prophecy to be fulfilled. What does the knapsack and the money bag have to do with it? 
good question, right? Oftentimes those don't really get kind of, uh, so, are they, are we looking for meaning from them? Like, are, are they supposed to be analogical towards something well, else? So I think I don't here's, here's so. another way to think about it. And, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. One could make the case that what Jesus is preparing them for too, because this is Luke's gospel, the sequel to Luke's gospel is the book of Acts. So what Jesus is preparing them for is to continue his work while he is gone because he's going to send them to heaven. And so him talking about a money bag, him talking about a knapsack, and him talking about a sword, it does both. It does fulfill Isaiah 53, but it also is saying, you guys got to be prepared because I'm leaving you. You guys are going to go out from here. You're going to continue on this work of the gospel. Of course, the Christian way is not going to be the way of aggression. Of course, it's not going to be the way of violence. Of course, he says to Peter, Peter, put away your sword. But I think it, it seems to me, at least, an inconsistent hermeneutic to say it is only about Isaiah 53. I'd say, yes, it is. But I'd say also there's some very practical implications when you see it in the context of the book of Acts and the continued missionary work of the apostles. So Perfect. Let's talk about the book of Acts. Give me one place in the book of Acts that a sword is used. I would say in the book of Acts, you don't see... It's, it's a continuation, right? So we're yeah. continuing... As you said, we're continuing. If this sure. passage is supposed to be a precursor to the continuation of the gospel ministry of the apostles, yeah. yes, there's there's conversations of money bags. Sure. What do they do? X2 and X4. They all came together, had everything in common, shared everything, sold off their goods, brought it all together. We see that. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about a cloak and missions work going out. Yes, we see a lot of missions work. Yeah. Where does the sword come into play? Where does anyone try to defend themselves? If, in fact, where do we see defense when Paul is persecuting or people are being stoned? Yeah. So when he, at times in the book of Acts, flees from danger and he seeks protection, right? I think there could be the argument that if you say Christians can't seek protection, they got to stand in there and take whatever evil comes their way. I'd say the book of Acts would say there are times when, you know, Paul says, hey, I'm going to Rome. And, of course, all these other people say, no, you can't go to Rome. This is going to happen. He goes, no, I'm going to Rome. I got to go to Rome, right? But then there's other times when it seems like he's seeking to get out of the persecution Mm -hmm. that's going to come his way. So I think the case could be made just from that principle that that could be the extension, the continuation of that suggestion in a very practical sense that you have every right to as you're going out and as you encounter the persecution that you're going to encounter defend yourself so you made a perfect non-violent argument <laughs> from him getting out of there and yeah, yeah. You, that is that is the argument of non-violence we don't see paul aggressively or using violence in his in his response towards the aggression handed to him. Yeah. But he does flee, right? This is the misnomer that people have about nonviolence, that nonviolence means that a violence being done to me, mm-hmm. I just take it and I don't do anything. And I don't, no, no, no. Paul is nonviolent resistance. I am fleeing. Yeah. I'm not going to be a masochist and let these people right. harm sure. me. Right. I am fleeing. Yeah. But he also doesn't say, 
I've got a sword. <laughs> Let me at him. Watch yeah. out. Yeah, 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 because yeah, yeah. if if you if well, you throw another punch right. off with your head, right? Yeah. No, he he leaves. This is where, like, yeah, you can say that, but I think that's a really strained argument yeah. to try and say that the continuation of de- self-defense is nonviolent resistance. Yeah. I, I think I, like again. If we look at Acts, I mean, you're right. You're 100% right. There's no mention of a sword in the apostles doing it. The mission of Jesus is to go make disciples of every nation. And you see them doing that in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. You know, into the book of Acts, you were in Gentile territory taking the gospel there. Awesome. It's It honestly is an argument from silence either way. On their missionary journeys, were they in any way, shape, or form taking any means to defend themselves through carrying a sword. We don't know. Right? So perfect. Let's talk about non non-arguments from silence. Yeah. We have arguments of Jesus, the most dangerous person to Christians. Right? Because Jesus says things all the time that we don't like. Sure. He says things like turning the other cheek that we don't like. He says things about don't use the sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. He, he says things that we don't like. And then John in Revelation says something that's enigmatic, that depending on your translation, right? Uh, at the beginning of John, or sorry, the beginning of Revelation, John the Revelator makes the claim that it's a revelation, depending on your translation, of Jesus Christ or from Jesus Christ, right? Either way, pretty strong revelation. And over and over again, in the book of Revelation, we get this very clear passage of those who will be the victors. And it says, for those who followed the lamb who was slain. It doesn't say for those who defend or those who rise up and those who attacked those who were evil. It says nothing of the like. It says for those who follow the lamb who was slain. Not a victorious warrior god, but the crucified God, right. that's who you follow, and that is who, uh, who, who will lead you, right? right. That, is, that is who God is, the lamb who is slain, not the warrior God who comes back to kill, steal, and destroy, right? And so we, we have plenty of arguments for nonviolence that are not arguments from silence, but we don't have arguments towards the use of violence at least in the New Testament. Okay, so that's a great transition. Let's talk about the Old Testament. Dun, dun, dun. Exodus 22.2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. Now, what I've heard a lot of people do is they say, well, that's Old Testament. It's done away with. You don't have to even look at it. It doesn't even matter. Persona non grata. Trump card slammed down. Ace of spades. We don't have to worry about it. All right, so what is that verse talking about, and how do we interpret it as New Testament Christians? Yeah, we're not um, Andy Stanley. <laughs> who I know who's apologized for his statement that we need to unhook our wagon from whatever it was that he, I don't remember the exact language, right? Which he's apologized from, and he took his Marcionism and uh, <laughs> repented of it. That's yet to be determined, but continue, yes. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm going to ask you a question okay. to help frame my response to this, okay. right? When do, you, when do you follow a law of the Old Testament or not? 
particularly of the first five, the Torah law. Right. So the way that I see it is there in certain laws is the general equity principle and the sense of what is the principle in place for all people in all places and all times. So when it talks about this particular instance, what's the principle? We don't live in ancient Israel. And so obviously the laws of ancient Israel that apply to ancient Israelites, because that's not a nation anymore, because we're, yeah, we're not them. So we can't take that and say that that's binding in the way that it was in those particular ways that it was to them. But we can see the principle at work there. We can see the principle of loving your neighbor. We can see the principle of, um, you know, even things like, hey, I've got an animal that goes and kills somebody. All right, well, I should, probably should put that animal down if I'm really going to love my neighbor, right? Um, and so that's kind of how I see it, that in these verses and in these commands, like there, there is something to be said about Christian ethics and New Testament ethics in that principle that is for us and i would say is for all people in all places and all times okay i i see it okay i get it so next question who gets to determine which principles and what are the principles i think that's where the world of christian ethics comes in people smarter than me like you that have degrees can pontificate about what does this mean (laughs) and grapple and wrestle and say hey is this is this talking about this or is this talking about that? Or what does this mean? And so I don't think there's this careless, um, well, here's my verse. I'm going to do it. Right. I, I think it's a, you, you wrestle and you grapple and you, you look and you see, man, it seems that the word of God is consistent in valuing human life in such a way that man, when we're protecting those who are innocent from harm, um, there's no blood guilt on somebody that does that. So that's that's a good, I like the response, but let me kind of pontificate on the response, <laughs> right? Do it. To, to say that puts the choice of the principle within the reader's hands and the interpreter's hands. And whether that's PhDs or your, your uh, everyday reader of, of scripture, it's now claiming that principles... Either, either A, there is a timeless, quote-unquote, timeless principle that we can attach ourselves to, and we can pull out and we can say, this is it forever and ever, amen. Uh, that becomes a struggle because a couple hundred years ago, it was a timeless principle in the Old Testament that slavery was okay, and here's how to treat your slaves, and here's what you should do. Uh, and then we said, ooh, wait a second. That's not a timeless principle. In fact, that's actually wrong. Right. And we went back and we said, okay, let's go read the Old Testament again and recognize that slavery. Mm -mm. Yeah, it might say this is exactly here's the slaves you can have. Here's how to treat your slaves. Here's what you need to do with slaves. In fact, I see a lot of, I don't see a lot, but you know, you get onto X slash Twitter. I hate saying X because it feels like, you know, (laughs) the the, Uh, uh, platform formerly known as Twitter, we'll call it that. Yeah. And, and you can get down a dark hole of Christian people with degrees who actually claim that the Old Testament, because of the Old Testament's proclamations and because of principles, that slavery is actually God-given right and okay for today, 
but you may, but maybe you shouldn't do it yeah. because it's against the law. So you're talking about extreme theonomy, basically. I'm I'm talking about not even just that. I'm talking about how do we? This is a hermeneutic question. How do we determine who gets to say and how they get to say what that principle is and how long that principle lasts? For instance, there is there is we're not we're not going to deny by any stretch that scripture has a deep care of life that god through scripture talks about a deep care of life sometimes sometimes it talks about a, a very non deep care for life such as the drowning of the egyptian army such as the slaughter of men women and children in jericho uh, animals right and when we start to go and try to find ways to justify those slaughterings, and on one hand say, but life is intrinsically valued. All life is valued. Unless you're, unless you're the Egyptians, unless you're Jericho, unless you're AI, and particularly in the places where women and children are also killed, then we start to say, okay, well then who is, who's getting determined the, the principle that says that this is the way it always is and always should be? Uh, we have a we have a hard time with that when it comes to the Old Testament, particularly New Testament. I th- I think we see some greater clarity, and we must because Jesus is the revelation of God, right? So through Christ, we see a much clearer picture of who God is. Uh, and if we argue that, that would be a kind of an odd, you know, sure, no, no, fourth, fifth century yeah. argument, right? Yeah. Because there's also passages, and I'm and I'm only bringing these up to to recognize to say something like there is a principle that all life is worth defending. Then we're going to have a lot of struggles with some other passages, including another one of our Torah laws that talks about the jealousy of a man with his wife. In which case, a wife he believes that his wife has committed adultery and has and has is pregnant because of that and they take her to the temple and the priest concocts a mixture and the woman is supposed to drink it and if she does have if she did have an affair it's prayed over her that the child would be aborted and if not that the child would live that's a really freaking hard passage to deal with in the old testament because it's it's saying well yeah this life is valued if the wife didn't have an uh, an affair, but if the wife did, we've got a problem here, right? There's also other passages, particularly about preborn or unborn uh, children, in which you know two men are fighting, and and uh, a, a wife gets involved who's pregnant, and she gets punched, and it causes the child to come out, and the child is fine, but it causes the child to come out. Uh, then what happens? There's like a small payment. On that one, but there's also a payment. There's also a payment for if a wife, if wife gets punched in this altercation between two men, and the child comes out, and the child does not survive. I mean, I think in our principled thing, we think an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. In other places, with alive humans of more age than you know just being born, it is life for life. But in this instance, it's just a greater payment restitution to the husband of the wife who now has lost a child. I say all that to say this. It was a long kind of like, yeah, we can grab a verse. We can. 
and we can say, well, this verse appears to us to say that it is our, not only our right, but maybe even our duty to protect. And I would go to places like Amos, where the prophet is very clear to the people of Israel that they have failed in taking care of the poor and the marginalized and those who are being abused and those who are being killed. They were being pointed out clearly. Uh, I think there's places that we can go. My fear is when we, especially in this kind of art, in this kind of discussion, right? Um, this kind of like self-defense discussion that we pick out passages and we go, this appears to, it seems to be, without a larger biblical theology, um, which is another one of those kind of weird sure. disciplines that actually has been yeah. kind of left out so, for a long time. So when we talk about the Old Testament and we talk about the Old Testament laws and we talk about, you know, some life is valuable, some life isn't valuable, you know, that kind of thing. I think we have to look at it in the grander narrative of like the fall. We have to look at it in the grander narrative of what sin has brought into the world and how nobody sins in a vacuum and that sin has societal and cultural implications to it. And so, yeah, those are tricky passages in the Old Testament, but it's not that no interpretation is sufficient. I do believe that someone can study the word Somebody can look at the grand narrative of Scripture and see what's happening through the coming of Jesus, through the new covenant. And someone can see that there's a consistency of principles, that God is a God of justice. God is a God of love and forgiveness and steadfast love to, you know, generation upon generation. And so we can see the character of God and the nature of God. And we also can see that his law is consistent. It's not inconsistent. Um, so I, I think when this particular passage, I mean, I, I agree with you, we do have to look at the grand narrative, but I think, I think it's concerning if I'm hearing your argument to say, well, we can't really know what it means because I mean, there's a lot of complicated stuff in the old Testament. So I, I think that I'm not saying that's what you're saying, but I'm yeah. saying that could be a slippery yeah. slope to say, I mean, who knows what it means? Cause you know, gosh, there's so many complicated seemingly contradictory passages in the Old Testament. So can we really even use the Old Testament? No, in fact, actually, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. Okay. What I'm saying is we have to have a better theological, biblical theology that takes into account all these different passages, that takes into account a sanctity of human life, and also then learns how to deal with what, have, what has been sometimes called text of terror, Right. How do we approach texts of terror, particularly when we talk about things like the Egyptian, the Egyptian narrative, right? The Exodus narrative and the Egyptians. Uh, but texts of terror was really originally kind of started with texts of terror against women. The many passages about women, you know, prostitutes being cut up and sent out. Uh, and we go, yeah, that's fine, right? Like, no, it's not fine. Like, yeah. It's not, regardless of sin or not, it's not fine. And there's zero retribution towards those who make those, who do those things. So when I say that, what I'm saying is we need to be better at taking account what is our hermeneutic of the Old Testament, particularly what is our hermeneutic of Torah laws, 
how do we approach them that is not just consistent, but is also healthy and helpful in the way that we engage with them? And we can talk about, to some degree, some uh, early church fathers and their approaches to these, because the early church fathers had some kind of unique perspectives that are lost to our 21st century church about dealing with passages that actually seem contrary to to God revealed in Jesus. And they were actually much more open to the idea that there are there are passages, there are, are times in which uh, the Israelite people got it wrong. Sure. That they got it wrong. Well, and there's and, a difference between prescriptive scripture and descriptive scripture, right? It's not saying in the Old Testament for us as believers, hey, this guy had multiple wives. Go out and get multiple wives, right? I mean, anyone that says that, we would look at them and say, no, that's 100% a distortion of that, right? Well, I would say, where does the Bible say that you can't have multiple wives? Well, that's another podcast for another time, and yeah. it tends to be a yeah a controversial subject. We'd be very sad to say it doesn't say that anyway. <laughs> unless time. you're unless you're you know of an elder, in which case then you can't. Okay. But otherwise, well, I'll say also Jesus said, "Have you heard from the beginning?" He quotes Genesis, where it says, "For this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one." So God's design is two to become one. So there's my answer to that, but. I digress. Um, so when we look at like this idea of American Christians feeling as though owning a gun is, first of all, ethical in terms of a Christian understanding of it, right? So an American Christian would look and see hey, I'm not going out with the gun to try to inflict conquest or violence, but using it to defend the innocent. And someone looks at those passages we looked at earlier and says, based on my interpretation of this, I would say, man, not only is this permissible for me to have it, this is also something that God has given me kind of a responsibility to protect innocent life. Um, and they would say, hey, I have a right to carry a firearm. I'm against all sorts of gun control and gun legislation. What would you say to them in terms of that? Gun control legislation, will that put an end or stop to gun violence? And why or why not? Uh, well, that's a sociological question, right? So we're, yeah. that's, a, that's a whole other... But let me say something about the other parts of what your comments were, right? When we talk about rights... We have to be very clear that we're not talking about God-given rights. Yes, 100%. We're talking about American USA yep. political right, yeah. not right as a human person. I agree with right? you on that 100%. Yep. Um, and we have to be very clear because that's oftentimes too conflated yeah. in our culture. Yeah. We, we assume that the Bill of Rights is the God's Bill of Rights, and that's not yeah. the case. And, and honestly, and I, I think I kind of expressed this to my last guest, but that's something I did disagree with him on. I asked him the question, do you feel like the right to bear arms is a God-given right? I thought that was an alley-oop for him to say, no, no, no. But he said, yeah. I said, no, I don't think it is, right? I don't, I don't think it is. But as Americans, 
What's afforded in our Constitution is that we have certain rights. We have the right to elect certain officials. We have the right to free speech. Mm -hmm. We have the right, for now, to bear arms. So is that a good thing for American Christians to exercise that right or not? I hope I don't offend people here real quick, but <laughs> you have the right to watch porn. Yeah. Yeah. You do. You have the right to do a lot of things. You currently have the right to marry someone of the same sex in the U.S. You have a lot of rights. I mean, that argument, that kind of argument, would have been exactly opposite of what would have been used by Christians when it came to abortion. Right. <laughs> Just because you have a right doesn't make it right. Right? So when we talk about rights, kind of to your point, right? Uh we are just because it is a right, a political right, doesn't make it right as a Christian in a Christian ethic. Without a doubt, right? We have a lot of freedoms that aren't necessarily Christian ethic <laughs> approved freedoms. Right. right. What I would say is this, and, and I have over the years taught many, many people in the military. Uh, and particularly taught them theology, right? And actually, one of the things I love about the university I'm at now, and I do truly love it about about it, is that it is brethren in its in its heritage. We have a brethren seminary, and we also have the military and veterans resource center. Hmm. Right? That's interesting. We have we have a place on our campus that is specific for taking care of those who are in the military, military connected or veterans, and. There are some that had a struggle with that. And for me, there was no struggle. Just because they're in the military doesn't mean that I don't take care of them and love them. Right? Whether Tertullian was right or wrong about how they should be excluded from the church, well, I would say he's wrong, right? I would say he's wrong. But my bigger issue isn't, isn't so much... Uh, okay, so my bigger issue is this. When we have the conversation about should owning a gun for self-defense, is, is that something that Christians should do or not do? I am not afraid of the conversation. I'm afraid of those who have certainty in the conversation. Hmm. Explain that a little Meaning bit. that they have come to the conclusion and they will say without any reservation, this is how it should be. And the reason why that makes me afraid is because then what's the point of the Bible? Because now I'm going to go read the Bible and everything I see is going to say, yes, I can. And everything that says, no, you shouldn't, you're going to go, that was, that was an old Testament thing. All right. Like mm -hmm. that was a, that, that's not what that actually says. So my biggest issue is that people and I, and, and the students that I helped, at least I hope I helped. I mean, they've said that I've helped. When they would come to me and say, I'm in the military, like, is this wrong? I said, at least you're asking the question. Hmm. Okay. Now let's talk about it. Like, let's, let's have a conversation. And I'm not going to tell you to go get yourself dishonorably discharged, right? So you can, like, no, that would be wrong too. I'm not going to tell you to do that, right? But let's have a conversation about it. And let's stay in conversation and let's work Let's pray. Let's invite the Holy Spirit. Let's read. Let's talk about biblical hermeneutics that are larger than a, a set of verses and more towards a biblical theology of the sanctity of human life. Enemy or 
or a friend or ally, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of passages that talk about taking care of our enemy and preparing a feast for them. Sure. Things that we don't like reading. Uh, so my bigger fear is, is A, those who come to this conversation and just say, there is no conversation. Because that, to me, is antithetical to our Christian way of being. I also think we have to be careful because in this in this world in this conversation I'm trying to say this very carefully but in in this world in this in this conversation often weapons have become idols and people love their guns. Yes they do. And they love having them and they love the feeling of having them and they love the feeling of shooting them. And and I I get it. I love shooting I say I love here I am just using the exact word I'm saying you shouldn't. uh like it's it's exhilarating it's it's fun it can be it can be you know a rush you know I've I've shot guns from massive calibers to fully automatics and and they're fun there's something about it that kind of can get us like worked up for a second when you're when you're doing that but I'm I'm I what I think is wrong full stop is the idolatry of weapons. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's the it's the space in which weapons where we can't have a conversation about what is right or wrong because the love of the weapon overcomes the love of God. Yeah. And of course no one's going to say that, right. right? Just like anything, no one's ever going to say they have idols. But when we when we are afraid to have the conversation or are even afraid to ask God and seriously and consistently engage in conversations with people and with God, with scripture, and say, Hey, is this a thing in my life that shouldn't be? Well, uh, that's I think a bigger issue. Yeah, no, it, altogether I, I agree with that one hundred percent. Um one quote that I've said often is an idol is anything you have to consult before you follow what God is speaking to you. Right. And, mm. and so even if someone has that impression from the Holy spirit that I just don't need to own a firearm. Okay. Would you be willing to, if God said to you, you don't need to own a firearm as a matter of personal conviction, would you be willing to say, okay. Or would your loyalty to your identity as an American that has a right to the second amendment mm-hmm. to have one, would that take precedence yep. over your loyalty to the conviction that God gave you through the Holy spirit? So hundred percent in agreement with that. Um, yeah. And, and, and I do see that it is, it does tend to be a problem that we don't want to wrestle with the scriptures. We don't want to come to a responsible ethical and biblical understanding of, is this right? And is this most honoring to the Lord for me to exercise this in my life? Um, do you want to comment briefly on the sociological issue of, of gun control? I mean, was that something you want to even take a step into? Or, I well, I'd, I mean, my only comment would really be like, do we have examples of where good gun reform has shown a precipitous drop in gun violence? Yes, we do. Are those analogous to the space that we are at in the United States today? Probably not. Okay. Right? I mean, when there's more guns than people in the United States. And it's a bit of grand. I think it, I think that was the last statistic, yeah, but maybe a bit of grand. No, it is. Yeah, no, that's what Taylor said last close, time we recorded. Yeah. Uh, those same kind of reforms are 
going to be somewhat problematic because the amount of weapons in the United States is insane. And that's, that's part of our own problem. I think the fact that we even, because that's, that's well beyond self-defense. Yeah, sure. Right. When there's multiple weapons per person, that's well beyond the idea of like, I'm going to have a gun in my house in the event that someone is breaking in and I want to defend my family. What would you say to the idea of our last guest who said that part of it is for the limitation of tyranny? A lot. Um, <laughs> I mean, and his I, his idea was a, this: like, is it really wise idea to give the government more control? That was his wise idea. And I want to say, what control do you think you actually have? <laughs> what what do you think your your even your little arsenal of fifteen guns? I don't know. I'm just throwing out a number. Sure. Is going to do towards a government with planes and tanks and bombs and nukes? Right. Like. This the idea that that guns and the founding fathers were a way of defending against tyranny, if true, and there's plenty of historical debate on why it was said, right? In order to establish a well-regulated militia, right? We can talk about that comma until we're blue in the face, and about actually what it means, um, and go back to originalism, which is often a term that a lot of people love when it comes to the Constitution, but very rarely is there any sophistication in that discussion about originalism, especially hermeneutical sophistication. We can talk about that till we're blue in the face, but we can also recognize that even if that is our argument, it's to defend against tyranny, you've lost. Sorry. Sorry, you've lost. The government already, if you were afraid of a government uh, who would rise up in tyranny against the people, well, then we should never have been spending the amount of money that we spend on military every year in our annual budget. Because hmm. that military, the military resources, the military technology, the military industrial complex, we want to pretend like America's the, the number one military in the world. I guess my AR-15 is going to do something. <laughs> well, right? and again, like, I think we would have to get into that space of talking about the merits of a federal government versus a United States, you know? And so I think that's kind of where, but again, that's a massive discussion around the time. I was just interested in your comments on that. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. and even my language here is aggrandized and it's aggrandized for a reason. I don't have, we don't have a long time to talk about well, it. Right? it would, like it, we could get into the nuance. Yeah. And, and there's okay. a lot of angles you could look at it at. Last question. Here's the big one. Mm-hmm. How should a Christian respond if they see a person inciting violence and harming someone who is innocent based on what? They weren't big before. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, yeah. So what is, what is a Christian response to seeing violence, yep. right? You know, that is, that's a big, that's, that is probably the heart. Like when it comes to like guns, yeah, we can talk about that until we're blue in the face. But I think you're to the point. This is the actual, like maybe the crux of the actual conversation. Yeah. So whether or not it's what is a Christian. Yeah. Whether or not it's like okay. So I I did taekwondo for five years, right? So if someone you know accosted me and my children, right? I'm I'm not gonna just go okay, go ahead, steal my daughter. There's gonna be something in me that says, no, I know how to defend myself and my children using my hands 
is that right? Is that wrong? Is that the Jesus way? Is that the way of the world? What, what, what questions do we have to ask ourselves when we're thinking about that? And even guns yeah. and being involved with that as well. Yeah, I think this is, like I said, I think this is the heart of the matter, yep. right? Like, what is a Christian response to violence, right? And there have been a lot of books written about it. In fact, I was reading Hans Borsma book about violence on the cross some time ago. Because again, I'm still interested. I'm not settled in my question of here is exactly how we should deal with violence, right? I I think about there are are great theological theories that deal with ideas of taking on suffering and actually breaking the cycle of violence by being willing to take on suffering on behalf of others, right? That's um, that's what we call maybe in some sense the scapegoat theory of atonement when we talk about mimetic theory and we talk about why does Christ, why does Christ and Luke not put up a fight and, and then in return does not give violence. He actually takes on violence so that others don't take on ultimate violence, right? We... Again, my my answer is going to be unsatisfactory, and I'm <laughs> and I'm claiming that so that way when people are like that guy was an idiot, why would you even have him on the podcast, right? Like, Nobody look, say that. Come on. I'm telling you now, it's going to be unsatisfactory because if you want the answer to be this or this with certainty, I don't have it, right? Because that question is a really deep seated question that theoretically, theoretically, it's easy, and by that I mean. I can say theoretically, never. A, a, a Christian should never use violence. But in practice, and even biblically, we do have places in which the, uh, again, they weren't directed to use violence, but the Israelites were, were called out for not protecting those who were put into suffering, and then they themselves putting people into suffering, mm-hmm. Right. Um, so there is a, a clear biblical theology towards, towards not causing suffering and towards taking care of those who are put into suffering, how we put that into practice as a practical theology. That's where, that's where like, I'm glad I'm not a practical theologian, (laughs) right? Like, uh, Super glad, right? Right. I, right. Only in the sense that, like, that's the harder question. And the best that I can kind of say is this. God is a God who takes on violence, and he doesn't dole it back out. This is Jesus on the cross. He takes on the violence of the world. He takes on the suffering of the world. He takes on the sin of the world. And he does not, in turn, cost, cast retribution to those who cause him that violence. Right? In fact, he forgives them on the cross. Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing, right? Amidst being put into ultimate suffering, he forgives them so that he himself does not continue a cycle of violence against the oppressor. How do we put that into practice? How do we actually say this should work? How do we do it? Again, it's it's a question that I think about in my head all the time, right? I used to have... Um, we had for a long time a German shepherd, loved my German shepherd. We unfortunately had to rehome him to a wonderful lady who actually owned the kennel that we had taken to when we traveled. Like, and, and I always felt a little bit safer 
with my German Shepherd, right? He would bark behind the glass door in the front, but as soon as you walked in, he would just be your friend, right? Like, but you know, that bark is a bark and it, the German Shepherd scared, we couldn't take him on a walk without people like walking to the other side of the walkway because they saw a big German Shepherd. Um, so I asked this, now that we don't have him uh, in preparation of our, our next child, like, yeah, the question has become more apparent to me. I'm like, oh, well, I don't have the German Shepherd. What would I do? And it's a question that I do wrestle with. And I, and I would say with my emotions, my care for my family, with my desire for their safety, I would protect them. What does that protection look like? How does that handled? What do I do in light of it? Those are all things that, yeah, I can speculate until I'm blue in the face, but I don't have someone trying to break in and harm my family, thankfully, thank God, right? Uh, and what what's going to happen in the future if that were? I don't know how I'm going to respond in a moment such as that. Sure. Right? But I do know that the question weighs on me, and it is a question that I think about. I see the reality of the person of Christ, and I aspire to that reality as much as I fail so very often. I understand following the Lamb who was slain. I understand the biblical theological bent towards nonviolence, towards towards turning the other cheek, towards taking on the suffering of others, and to actually kind of get my human physical body to, to follow that all the time is not easy and comes with complications such as, not that my family's a complication, but you know what I'm saying. It's <laughs> yeah. more complicated than a simple this or that. Sure. Yeah. I, I think if I hear you say, I mean, I, I, I appreciate your answer for that. And I think that's a very fair one. I think on either side of this, I think what's needed in the church right now is a tremendous amount of respect for people on the other side of this, there, there are extremes and there are people who are not being careful and biblical when it comes to this issue. I will give you that 100%. I've met them, talked to them, I've attended church with them, right? Where you start talking about guns and one would think that you're denying the divinity of Christ, right? If you even bring up the question. Um, but at the same time, I've met people like you, where you're saying, man, I've got a lot of questions. I'm grappling with this. I'm wrestling with this. I'm looking at the scriptures in this. And man, I, I may not agree with you on everything, but I respect you for the fact that you're saying, hey, these are questions I'm still asking. These are things I'm still grappling with, right? Um, and, and on the other side, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for my friend Taylor, who's a law enforcement officer and who teaches self-defense and shooting courses. Um, because I think the stereotype sometimes that's given towards people who are gun owners can be very unfair to say they're just, you know, big fat guys that want to be John Rambo and that, you know, stash guns under every pillow under their couch, you know, just praying for somebody to walk up the driveway so they can show them what's up. And, and I just don't feel like that's a very accurate or helpful stereotype, even though I do feel like there are some people who are, like I said, extreme and not responsible with how they're viewing this. But I think somewhere in the middle, is the space where we can wrestle with it and we can look at it and open our Bibles and really try to listen to the voice of the Lord in our consciences and say, okay, God, what's the most pleasing thing for me in terms of how I apply this truth to my life? I think, Josh, one thing that we, we can never forget, though, in that conversation, and, and this is kind of me, 
what is the the eschatological telos end goal of creation? What does God have for us in the fulfilled kingdom of God? The one that is here, as Jesus says, one that is now, but not yet, right? What is our end goal? And I think we have to keep the end goal in mind. Our weapons of any sort in the end goal of the eschatological purpose of the world? No. In fact, actually, it's turning weapons into farming equipment, right? That is the end goal. That is it. So how are we working towards that end goal today? If we don't keep that in mind, then the conversation isn't really a conversation about what does God have for the world and how are we a part of it, as much as it is what can I do within the world today? Hmm. And I'm, I'm more concerned about how do we enact the kingdom of God today as we await the return of Christ and its ultimate fulfillment that, yes, only God can do, but he has asked us as his creative, created partners within the world, how are we working towards the enactment of that? That that question, if we don't keep that question, then it is going to excuse us from being good citizens of the kingdom that we are supposed to be a part of today. And that question should ultimately continue our drive towards what is the end goal and how do I get there? Hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We are, we, are, we are tasked with this as Christians. We are tasked to build the kingdom of God. Yeah. That's a that's a full stop, I I I'd hope. Right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. so if we're not looking forward and saying, what is the vision? Whether you want to look at Revelation and you want to look at some of the end chapters and the pictures of, you know, not that we're actually paving streets of gold. I don't think that's what the <laughs> passage is saying. Anyways, right? But if we're well, if not actually knows, saying yeah. <laughs> right. And sometimes the best thing we can do is go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and say, what was the world created to be? Right. Because in some ways, that should resemble the way in which God is working towards the kingdom of heaven in the future. Yeah. Right? And if we're ignoring that, then I think we have ultimately failed as Christians. And I think we can, I think that is plain to say. Sure. And so if we're not asking the question, I guess I've said this like six times now in a row. In different <laughs> if we're not asking the question, what is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? What is it supposed to look like? What is its end goal? What is its purpose? And how does my engagement with guns, weapons, uh, taking care of others, even in light of suffering or violence, what is my role in that today that is mirroring or attempting to mirror what the kingdom of God is supposed to be as I'm supposed to be building it today, then I think we've lost our purpose as the church. Hmm. Yeah. And and it's more than just an evangelical purpose, which unfortunately I think has been most people's main thought processes when it comes to the even the eschatological end goal of the world, just get everyone saved. Right. No, that is a part, an important part, but a part of the building of the kingdom of God. And what is the rest of it that Mm. we've often been really bad, especially our modern church, really bad at at working on 
And then we can ask the question, and I probably should have started this with this and rather than <laughs> ending with it, but then we can ask the question, what is the role of a person having a gun today? What, how should we approach it in light of the kingdom that's coming? Yeah. yeah. And being good citizens. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great, great thought. Good place to, to land the plane too. And um, yeah, I just want a quick comment about that before we do land the plane. I mean, I think yes and amen to all that. I think also consideration of it's the now, but not yet. Right. I mean, we are looking towards that. Ultimate I, I fulfillment. think you said something really important, but you actually broke up the entire time. So I was just like, yeah, oh. yeah I was saying the now, but not yet. Right. I mean, we, we are yeah. looking forward to that and we are living in such a way that his kingdom come as will be done on earth as in heaven. Yes. And amen. But in the now, but yet, yet, unfortunately evil still does exist in the world. Right. So how do we, how do we work in a, in a system where we are building the kingdom, living for the kingdom, looking ahead to the eschaton, but Fortunately, we live in a world of evil. So how do we protect innocent from evil? How do we deal with it as we live in the world? So yeah, that would just be my yeah, my I think add, adding to that. Yeah, yeah, and I would I would agree with you, but I would make one caveat. There's no but in the Jesus prayer. Hmm. There is not there is not a help us, right? Your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But we know it's really messy and and we know it's not really accomplishable today because there's evil. Jesus never prays this way to kind of to kind of give a caveat to the kingdom of God being here and now. He prays, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yeah. Your will be done. And who is he saying that about? In, in so many ways, yes, it is a grand statement of your will be done in all of the earth, but your will be done in me as it is. In heaven, not as it will be one day when there's no evil, or and and but but you know I'll caveat it with all this other stuff. It is this: your will be done. That's why the prayer is hard. Yeah, the prayer is not an easy prayer. The prayer is a hard prayer. It's a prayer that demands everything from us, and we don't necessarily always like it because Jesus is great at asking for everything. And he's also great at saying to someone like the rich young ruler who comes to him and says, I've got everything, I've got all this money, I've done everything that could be asked of the Torah law, I've followed it all, how do I follow you? Well, give up all your money, give it to the poor and follow me. And he turns around. I love that, and it's also terrifying. Hmm. It's terrifying because Jesus never turns around to the rich young ruler and says, wait a second, start with 10%. Right. Come on back. Follow me. Just give me 10%. Give me one sliver. We'll practice and exercise your giving muscle as we go, and we'll get you to 100%. Hmm. Jesus is like, all or nothing. Yeah. That's what you got. All or nothing. Yeah. And by all accounts, the rich young ruler turns around and goes home. Yeah. I, that, that passage terrifies me more than many passages in Scripture sure. because... Jesus demands all. Yeah. No caveats. All. Yeah, man. Wow. Well, Aaron, man, it's been a pleasure talking to you, dude. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, and dude. Talking about all this stuff and really, really appreciate it. If uh, Hey, I appreciate being here. Yeah, man. People want to find your podcast. Where would they go to find it and uh, catch up on your blog and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I would say, well, you can go back to the blog. There's a lot of great pieces. I mean, there's hundreds of pieces on there. Uh, 
it, it's everydaytheology.online. Um, but the podcast is everywhere podcasts are. It's by every other week, I think. Um, and uh, you can always tell it's my... It's funny, I started a podcast however many years ago. There was no active podcast with the name, and now there's like 20 because everyone <laughs> thinks that the name of my podcast, I guess, is the best. <laughs> but you can always tell it's mine because there's an ironic, long-haired, brown. Brown-haired, yet brown-eyed Jesus, which not mm. some people have noticed. They've realized, hey, I'm starting to say, look, we've had the blue-eyed Jesus is not <laughs> the one. He was brown-eyed, but uh, yeah. uh, but brown-haired brown-eyed Jesus holding an iPod, listening to some AirPods. Some people might think it's heretical, but my intern who <laughs> developed it thought it was great. And I was like, yeah, great. Let's go with it. So look for the Jesus holding an iPod and that's you. So awesome. Yeah. And I have, um, next year I have a chapter of a book coming out, awesome. uh, in a book called Spirit and Song. Yeah. Um, we'll just give a little caveat to that book, a little shout out. Yeah. It'll be Fortress Press okay. with some friends. Um, it's all about how the spirit is at work in music. They recently published their own on the spirit and film and talking about the spirit Very and relationship cool. to film. And sometime next year, by the end of next year, my dissertation will be published. Awesome. Uh, I say that in faith. There you go. There you go. There's your Pentecostal roots coming out. Yep. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Which I wish we had more time because I was actually really, when you wrote your, and everyone's going to be like, isn't this supposed to be ending? Yeah, well, I'm a Pentecostal. So, <laughs> I have one uh, more thought before I close. Even though, yeah. <laughs> even though I'm actually a an Anglican priest, but that oh, there's, there's a cross over there. I got here, some Anglican right? listeners. So yeah. yeah. Um, oh, cool. Well, I'm a Pentecostal Anglican Anglican priest. Anyways, I was really impressed with your uh, your history of the AG there, right? Yeah, actually talking about the AG being a nonviolent group until World War II. Which do you know when that particularly changed? I do not know. Huh. And who? I, yeah, I always just I, I had a student who is interested in this and I helped him with a research project and I just think it's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so for history buffs, this is your little like tidbit at the end. Um, the, the change in the, because the assemblies of God was one of the first denominations to get conscientious objector approval from Congress. Hmm. Um, so that way ministers uh, and congregants um, could claim conscious objection. Uh, when the Zimmerman note makes it we when we i guess when we you know get it right and we it was published and we we see this zimmerman letter where you know uh hitler is encouraging you know uh mexico to try to take back over texas that's when the switch happens hmm. and it's not a switch that's like immediate like overnight like the ag is like you know what we're all for it let's just war go to war save our world you know world war ii it was actually the denominations in and around Texas, the churches in Texas, Interesting. who start to make the switch. The switch starts there, which, of course, again, back to what you were saying, or kind of what I was saying to you earlier, Josh. Like, you know, in practice, in uh, in theory, it's easy to say yep. no, but when it actually kind of comes down to your front door, like it did to the pastors in Texas uh, at the time, uh, that's a little bit harder to to remember the words of Jesus in those moments. Yep. Um, so that's super interesting. Uh, I know that. Yeah. Huh. Sorry. So you, you put it there and I was like, I no, that's, that's super so cool. Bad. Well, yeah. it's funny. There's I was, historical I was writing that on there today and this weekend, Gabe, my podcast partner, him and I are running the Desmond Doss seven bridges marathon in Chattanooga. And if you've seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, Desmond mm -hmm. Doss is the Adventist, 
from Tennessee. I think he's from Tennessee. He's from somewhere in Appalachia. But anyway, he's the conscientious objector that goes as a medic, combat yeah. medic to, uh, yeah, World War II. So anyway, yeah, be thinking about Desmond Doss this weekend as I'm running. So there you go. More power to you. <laughs> I've done my marathon. Never doing it again. Well, you can do it with us next year, man. If it's a good experience, just, yeah. We can we can live stream it, do everyday theology, beers and Bible crossover while we're running over the bridges. It'll be great. It'll be great. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I proclaimed I would never do another <laughs> marathon. I still have half marathons, but yeah. uh, maybe okay. I would have. That would be some real convincing. I'm telling you, man, the way of Jesus is stuff, man. I'm telling you, he he, he requires 100 percent of us. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you, you pull out the passage that talks about running. Oh, dang it! I was going to say running marathons, but then Paul that's what I'm saying. <laughs> All right, I guess I guess I have yeah, to be in. Well, there you go. All right, if you uh, have questions for me or Aaron, you can send it to Beers and Bible Podcast at gmail.com. Leave us a YouTube comment or reach out via the Facebook. Thanks for listening. We'll see you guys next time. Well, thanks for listening. That's our show. If you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a share, leave us a review, or send us an email at beardsandbiblepodcast at gmail.com.